This is the Swift by Sundell podcast, the show that answers your questions about Swift development. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this very first episode of this podcast. I'm your host, John Sundell, and on this first episode, I wanted to give you a little bit of an introduction to the show, uh, what the concept will be, and a little bit why I'm doing this podcast. I'll also answer the first set of questions that you guys have sent in, uh, which, by the way, I'm super thankful for. I've gotten quite a number of questions, which is awesome, uh, because one of the things that is super important to me is that this show feels really, really close to the community. Uh, one big reason why I want to do it is to be able to answer some questions that you guys have and kind of have a little bit of a dialogue with different people in the community. We'll also have some really awesome guests on the show uh, from different parts of the community with different backgrounds who have different expertise. Uh, and what I want to make really sure is that the most important part is that the agenda is set by you, the listeners. Uh, the questions you send in is what we'll talk about on the show, uh, both with me and with the guests that will come on. So in this very first episode, I'm here uh, by myself and just, you know, getting a little bit of a, a warm up uh, for future episodes. Uh, and in those future episodes, uh, my plan is that I'll have guests on pretty much every episode. And we're already starting uh, with a really, really awesome person next episode. And I'm excited to announce that it's going to be uh, my friend, uh, Roy Marmelstein from Spotify. Uh, Roy, you might know him from many awesome open source projects, such as Phone Number Kit, Interpolate, etc. And he's really a great guy. So I'm looking forward to having him on the show for the next episode. So first things first, uh, why am I doing this podcast? Well, uh, I've been a podcast fan for a really long time. Uh, for the last couple of years, almost every day I'm listening to podcasts in one way or another. Uh, I listen to them when I run or bike or take a walk, when I cook dinner or almost anything that I do except for coding. Uh, when I'm coding, I'm listening to music, but anything else that I'm doing, uh, which is not around other people, uh, I'm almost always listening to a podcast. So as I was listening to a lot of shows and, you know, getting really into the medium and exploring what was available, uh, I, of course, at some point started thinking, uh, maybe I should give this a go. Maybe I should try to make a podcast. And I had this idea, actually, quite a number of years ago, and I've been thinking about it back and forth for quite a long time. So I, I knew I wanted to do a podcast and, or at least try it out, but I didn't know what it was going to be about. Uh, and that was kind of tricky. So how do I do a podcast without having a good concept? So it's always been at the back of my mind, but never been able to really do anything about it. So just thinking about it back and forth. But then about six months ago, I started blogging. Uh, I've always also wanted to write a blog, but never had any you know, inspiration or time to do that either. But I set myself a goal six months ago that can I challenge myself to actually write one blog post every week? Every week, publish something new. It doesn't have to be a huge post. It doesn't have to be 
super complicated, but if I can at least once per week explore something, talk about something, whatever it might be about Swift, uh, let's see how that would go. So I did that, started that six months ago, and it's been really awesome. Uh, I've had a lot of fun writing blog posts every week, and I'm planning to keep doing that uh, for as long as I can. And while blog posts are really fun and a lot of uh, a lot of fun and a great challenge to write that every week, uh, it's also kind of limiting in a way as what I can do because it's only me that's writing. And of course, I could invite other people to write on the on the blog, but I feel like this weekly thing is kind of you know the blog that I'm writing, and now I'm looking to do some other things with other people. So I've started to get a lot of questions from people around the community uh, as I started writing my blog, uh, both about the topic of the blog itself, but also about other things like what kind of libraries do I prefer, uh, what kind of techniques do I use, how do I set up my app, etc., uh, etc. Et so I thought to myself, maybe I can do a podcast where I answer questions from the community uh, that you guys are sending in. And maybe I can also use it as an opportunity to create these kind of things, but with more people from the community. And podcasting is actually a perfect format for that. It's much easier just to invite people on a show and have a discussion than to coordinate like a blog with multiple people writing on it in order for it to be coherent and, you know, have a good schedule. So I feel like this is a great opportunity for me to actually jump into podcasting, uh, see what that's like, have some discussions with different people in the community, being able to answer questions that I get in a nice way, and yeah, really try it out and see how it goes. So this is me trying it out, and I hope you're going to like it. Another uh, key aspect of inviting people into the show and why I want to do it is I want to invite people that, not always, but uh, sometimes I want to invite people that are really specialists within a certain field. So for example, uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, we're going to have an episode about security and about uh, cryptography. And I know a little bit about that stuff, like, you know, basic stuff and some do's and don'ts that you should use in your app, but I'm far from an expert. So this is an area where, you know, I'll invite some guests over that are, uh, that are experts, and you'll be able to ask questions specifically about these kind of topics. So I think that'll be really cool both for me to learn new things and listen to some of the uh, insights that these experts have, uh, but also just to have discussions around it and yeah, see where we go. So I think this uh, concept is going to be a lot of fun and I hope you'll be with me for the ride. So about the concept itself, uh, how, what will it look like and uh, what are some of the ideas that I have? So first of all, uh, like I mentioned, this show is going to be 100% about your questions. So um, make sure that you submit questions. Uh, anything that you want to ask about Swift, you can go to swiftbysundell.com slash podcast, and I'll put a link in the show notes to this address. Uh, and there you can submit questions using a form. You can ask any question that you want about Swift development. 
and you can choose to be either anonymous or you can leave your name and also your Twitter handle if you want. And I'll mention you on the show and put a link in the show notes to your to your Twitter page. Uh, again, if you want, uh, I'd love to give you credit because you know you came up with a question, so you deserve some credit for that. And then each of the sh- each of the episode, uh, me and my guests were going to pick some of the questions and answer them, and yeah, have a discussion around the topic on the show. And we're going to try to answer as many questions as we can. So keep them coming. Uh, whenever you have a question that you would like us to discuss or you want an answer to it, then please submit it. And some people have been asking me on Twitter uh, what kind of questions they can ask. Well, it can be really anything related to Swift development. It can be, you know, what kind of techniques uh, me and the guests prefer. Uh, it can be questions about certain techniques or different kind of styles of coding. Uh, it can be questions about frameworks and comparison with different frameworks. Uh, it can be about the evolution of the language itself, patterns and how to use them, some do's and don'ts or recommendations. It can really be about anything. Another question that was quite commonly asked when I announced this podcast was, well, how are you going to have a podcast that's about coding without being able to show any code? Well, I think that it'll work fine for most of the questions. Uh, We'll be able to answer them in a way that's informative just by voice and explain different concepts and what we think about it. But if there is something that we really need to show code in order to answer, then what we'll do is we'll just put a gist up on GitHub, put a link on link to it in the show notes, and you'll be able to just see that after or while you're listening if you want that as well. So we'll both be able to provide some code samples if it's required, or otherwise we'll just answer it verbally on the show. So I think that's going to work out pretty well. So... I think that's it in terms of the introduction to the concept and kind of why I wanted to do this show. Um, And I think we should just get started with some of your questions. So for this very first episode, I've picked some questions, uh, just some introductory questions and a little bit, some questions that were asked specifically to me that some of the guests won't really be able to answer. So the first question is... Uh, comes from James Valantis, and he is at Infinity James on Twitter. And he asks, what would it take for Swift to be a truly viable language when developing an Android application? Now, this is a really interesting question, and this is something uh, I'm constantly kind of looking at uh, in the community, how it's shaping up. Uh, there seems to have been some velocity uh, on this uh, subject on Swift Evolution a while back, but it seems to have quieted down a little bit, maybe, uh, maybe in favor of uh, things like Swift scripting and Swift on the server, etc., and other applications of Swift. Uh, but it's something that I'm really excited about personally. Uh, there are quite a lot of things that need to get in place in order for it to be a viable language for Android, I think. Uh, Well, initially you need compiler support, and this is something that different members of the community have been working on already and have made some really good progress on. Uh, So that is basically just enabling you to compile your Swift code to run on Android, right? So that's like the bare minimum, the basics. Then you need to do things like have good standard library support in on Android. So being able to use things like integers and strings and all the other things that come with foundation... Uh, in order to use them on Android in a nice way. 
So with those two things, you can kind of do the command line hello world on Android. Uh, just like get something outputted into the log, get a basic program to run, but you can't really build any sophisticated apps. So for that, you need a couple of more things. Uh, first of all, you need some form of UI library, like we have UIKit on iOS. Uh, you would need some kind of bindings to the things that Google provide, like the, the system. Uh, just like we have on iOS, we have you know system APIs, like anything from to perform you know, network connections, to render UI, images, etc., etc. Like you need all of those things. And you also need um, some integration with what already exists on Android. So for example, existing libraries and third-party things, and that would require some form of interoperability between Java that Android form, uh, primarily uses and uh, Swift. So just like we have uh, interoperability between Swift and Objective-C, uh, you would also need something similar for Java. Now you can achieve something like that with what is called the NDK, which is the Native Development Kit for Android. This is what you would use if you are writing, for example, C++ for Android. Um, and while that, you know, it's, it's a kind of a bridge to being able to communicate between the um, Java side of Android and the native side, because Java runs in a VM. So you could use that, but maybe it's not, it's not full interoperability. And I wouldn't say it's really making Swift a viable language just using the NDK. Uh, you would need something a little bit more smooth to be able to really mix and match uh, Java and Kotlin maybe in a, uh, in a Android project with Swift. So I think those are kind of the technical things that need to come into place. Uh, but you also need things like tooling and an IDE. You need to be able to write your code in a nice way. And there are some, some progress. There is some progress on that in the community as well. For example, being able to use Atom or Visual Studio Code for Swift development. Now, that would certainly make it easier to develop for other platforms like Android because I don't think we're going to see Android support in Xcode anytime soon. So when it comes down to it, I think there is quite a lot of work left in order to make Swift a kind of true, fully featured language on Android. Uh, you can already write like a simple proof of concept app, but you can't really write anything sophisticated. And I think this is going to take quite a lot of work. So personally, how I feel about this is I love Swift. I think it's my favorite language at this point. I really love it. And anywhere I can use it, whether that's for app development, server-side development, scripting, I, I want to use it. But when it comes to another platform, like, like Android, for example, I personally think that right now it's probably better to try to learn a language like Kotlin which is very similar to Swift in terms of syntax and kind of its philosophy behind it, uh, rather than trying to get Swift to run um, well enough on Android. Now, that being said, I don't think we should stop making progress towards this. Definitely we should. But if you're looking to write an Android app right now, rather than trying to use Swift and being frustrated, I think it's probably better to use Kotlin in this case. So thanks a lot to James for that great first question. Uh, I think it's a super interesting field and I think we'll, we'll probably have more questions about this in future episodes and we'll discuss this 
further in future episodes as well. So next question comes from uh, Aina Yain. I uh, hope I pronounced that correctly. And see, she is uh, Sinith Shanu on Twitter. I'll, there'll be links in the show notes. Uh, so you, you don't have to listen to my, my pronunciation for that. And she asks, why is reactive programming becoming popular like RxSwift? Now, uh, RxSwift is um, a really interesting technology that's uh, up and coming. And yeah, it's becoming really popular, not only in Swift, but pretty much on every platform. Uh, there's Rx for, you know, for Java. Originally, it was for, for C Sharp. So there's a lot of Rx out there. I think the reason Rx is becoming so popular is because it solves or it provides a solution to two really common problems um, that are really hard to solve as well. And those problems are state management and asynchronous programming. Now, um, state management is kind of one beast of its own, and there's a lot of techniques that can make it easier to manage state where you want to remove multiple sources of truth and you want to make sure to have a streamlined implementation where um, you don't have to jump through a lot of hoops to uh, update your UI, for example, when your state changes. You want to make that as smooth as possible. Uh, and this is where kind of reactive programming styles and Rx and these kind of things uh, come in because what they are really about is reacting to some form of state change and then making sure everything updates accordingly. So when you have things like Rx, which is really a stream of values uh, where you can just react to a value change, uh, the state management becomes a lot simpler because you are not assuming that you're in a certain state at any point. Rather, you're just like waiting for a new value to come in through the pipe and then you're just updating things based on that. So I think that's a model that is kind of easier to wrap your head around than just a bunch of if statements and closures and things like that. And that also comes into uh, asynchronous programming. You know, we've all probably been in this completion handler hell where you have nested and nested and nested closures. And I think Rx is a great tool for solving that as well, where you can just like map different operations into each other. And that way you can easily have an overview of what's going on in your asynchronous programming. Now, that being said, there's of course taking it too far and making like a crazy Rx chain, which is like flat map, flat map, map into different things. And then it becomes really hard to debug and understand what's going on. So there's no such thing as a silver bullet, for sure, but I think Rx can be a great tool to solve some of these problems in apps that have kind of more complex data flows, where you have different sources of data coming in and you want to combine them and you want to react to updates as well. So that's the reason I think why it's becoming popular, because it solves really common problems in a very nice way. Um, so yeah, that's what I think. And another thing which is great about Rx is that it has a community around it, which also boosts the, um, the reason, I think, why it's becoming more popular, because people can ask questions and they can get help, and that really makes it easier to get into as well. And there's some really great uh, books around it as well. For example, my friends, Marin Jr. and Florent, they wrote a great book uh, about Rx Swift for Ray Vandelich. So uh, I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well if you want to check it out, if you're curious about learning more about Rx. 
All right, so moving on to the next question. It's from Luis Arias, uh, who is at Luge Arma on Twitter. And he's asking about, should you use Almofire or not, or any external library to perform HTTP requests? Well, this is a very common question that I get a lot, not only about Almofire, but about anything that relates to third-party libraries, like which JSON parser should I use, which uh, caching library should I use, which HTTP library should I use? And the boring answer to that question is, it depends. Uh, like most things in programming, it depends. And what I always like to say is that good technical solutions, they really come down to a healthy mix between requirements and personal preference. So rather than taking one solution and saying this is the one solution that will always be the best, that's rarely true. Uh, it more comes down to what do you need for this specific project and what do you personally prefer? So for example, if you're building a larger app that will have lots of HTTP requests, it will use some of these advanced features in some of these HTTP libraries, then by all means, go ahead, use one. It's probably better than to implement it yourself because something that something like HTTP, it has a lot of corner cases. So if you can use a library where someone already considered many of these corner cases or a community that did, then you will probably end up with better code and a more stable app. But if you're building something more simple, let's say you're only performing one HTTP request in one place, or you're only performing simple GET requests with some parameters, well, using URL session in that case will do just fine, and it will be pretty much exactly what you need. Um, I don't think you need to use this huge tool then in order to just solve one simple, single problem. And this is kind of my general approach to whether or not to use frameworks. I'm definitely not against using frameworks. I mean, I'm working on a lot of open source frameworks, so it would be weird if I was against it. But I'm, I'm definitely cautious uh, whenever I pull one in because it's not for free. Uh, using an open source project comes with some form of maintenance where at some point it may be deprecated or starting to become unmaintained. And then you're gonna have to basically either replace it or try to contribute it to it yourself. So when I uh, have a problem like this that I'm considering a uh, open source framework for, I kind of go through a little bit of a decision process. Well, first of all, I try to use the system frameworks always whenever I can. Because it's supported by Apple, everyone knows how to use it. If I bring new people onto my team, uh, they already know how to use it. I don't have to spend a whole day explaining some third-party framework. So it's always the easiest choice. However, if I encounter something like I mentioned with, with Almofire and HTTP, uh, something that would take a long time to implement just using the system frameworks or something that is very complicated, then I look and see if there's a framework for it. And when I do find frameworks, I check that they have a healthy community around it, or at least someone who is maintaining it, that there are regular releases. I make sure that there's you know, some form of support that I can get if I need to. And I also look at the code and I make sure that if I find some bug in this framework, can I actually contribute to it and fix the bug myself, either on my fork or submit a pull request? So I think it's good to look at these things on a case-by-case -case basis and really try to decide whether this library is good in this situation or whether you should just go with the system framework. You don't have to use an abstraction or a library for everything. 
using the system frameworks is completely fine. And in fact, it's preferable in some cases. So I think that's kind of sums up my philosophy around it. The next question comes from Igor uh, Kravchenko. Sorry if I mispronounced that. Uh, he's at IGman2005 on Twitter. And he's asking me about my game engine. He says, can you tell me about your game engine? How is it implemented? And when will it be open sourced? Now, for those of you who do not know, I am working on a Swift game engine for iOS, macOS, and tvOS. Uh, it might be a little bit of a sign that I am crazy because I'm actually building a game engine from scratch. Um, but it's a lot of fun. And I've been sharing some progress lately on Twitter. I've been showing like, here's how the game engine works in terms of animation. And here's like a preview of the action system that it has. And here's how you can observe events. And here's some code samples. So first of all, uh, a good, good place to start, I guess, is why am I building a game engine? And that's a huge question, but just sh briefly, uh, the reason I'm doing it is uh, I really love games, I really love making games, and I'm also extremely curious. So I really wanna find out how a game engine works. And when I started taking some game engines that are popular apart, I found quite quickly that most of them are either closed source or they're huge or they're very hard to understand. So I just set it out, set out uh, as an exercise really to see what I could do in terms of just making a game engine. So that's kind of how it started. And then what I also want to do is I want to try to learn from other game engines that I've used both on iOS and other platforms to try to see what I liked about them and what I didn't like and see if I can improve. Now, of course, uh, my game engine is not going to be amazing, the best one ever made and a replacement for everything else. That's kind of, I'm not expecting that to happen. And, you know, I'm just one person and some of these game engines have like huge companies behind them. Uh, so I don't think I will build like the most best game engine ever. But I definitely think that it will be different because if you look at a lot of game engines out there, they are very similar in terms of concepts and kind of where they come from. And with my game engine, I'm actually breaking a lot of those conventions and I am doing things in a quite different way. Now, the most uh, concrete example of that is that in almost all game engines, like how it works when you create objects is that you subclass some form of superclass and you override this update method. And this update method gets called every frame. And this is kind of your chance to perform your game logic and update your game state and perform your rendering. Now in my game engine, there is no update method on standard game objects. Uh, there's a way to get a callback every frame, but it's definitely not standard. And this is kind of important in terms of performance. And this is one of the main reasons why I can put so many game objects on the screen at any single time, because not all of them needs to be updated every frame. So I have some different ways of thinking, I think, because I'm coming from a different background and maybe some of it will prove to be, you know, not good and wrong and I'll have to change that. But at least I think it'll be an interesting um, kind of point of discussion when it gets released. And about releasing, uh, I can't promise anything because I'm only working on it in my spare time. So I'm trying to get it open source as soon as possible. I wanna make sure that the API is stable first and that it works really well for me and the games that I'm working on. 
so that I don't put something out there and then I have to change it a lot because that would be very frustrating for people. So I want to put something out there that I'm kind of confident in and that I know works pretty well. So I'm hoping to do it as soon as possible. And uh, I'm going to keep sharing updates on Twitter as I go. So uh, if you're interested, uh, make sure to check that out. And about how it's implemented, apart from the um, update method thing, uh, it's using core animation for rendering. I was initially using Metal, but uh, I found it to be, I mean, it's super powerful, it's super cool, and I really love working with Metal, but I also found it to be quite complex. And I was thinking to myself, you know, as, as a single person who is working on this on this stuff, will I actually be able to optimize the rendering pipelines with Metal more than what Apple has done with core animation? And I started thinking, maybe not. Maybe actually uh, Apple's, Apple, who also, they build both Metal and Core Animation, they, they've probably optimized it pretty well. And that is true. Uh, core Animation is extremely well optimized. And it can do rendering really smartly and really quickly. So for now, I'm going with Core Animation. And I think that it's going to be a pretty good choice because it gives me this nice balance between being able to dive in kind of low level and customize things. But also, I don't have to write shaders from scratch or, you know, complete rendering pipelines, uh, which I've done and it's fun. But I'm looking here for the best optimized implementation. And for now, I think Core Animation provides that. So the final uh, question for this week, uh, or this episode, comes from my friend Mateusz Kajons. And his, he's at Koyoi on Twitter. And he has a question about continuous integration and continuous delivery. He asks, CICD is becoming a must-have currently. What's your take on this topic? What kind of solutions do you consider the best ones for iOS? And is it worth spending time on building CI and later maintaining it? Now, this is a kind of also complex topic, but I'll try to give my kind of take on it. And then we can dive more deeper into this topic uh, in future episodes if you guys have questions uh, more about CI and CD. So just to kind of, for those of you who don't know, uh, CI is what stands for continuous integration and CD stands for continuous delivery. And it's the idea of rather than just like doing a bunch of work and then eventually saying, okay, let's ship, let's do some QA and see if this works. It's the idea of being able to ship at any point. So you set up your, uh, your environment in order to run tests, try things out and ship continuously to testers. And then also eventually uh, with a certain schedule to the app store. And I think, first of all, yes, definitely. It's worth spending your time on CI and CD. Uh, it's a huge difference in workflow, and I think it's a positive change. It requires you to spend a little bit more time writing tests and assuring quality up front, but it's usually a huge productivity booster for you and your team when you can send builds out automatically to people, to your testers, and then publish at any time to the App Store. You don't have to go through a huge release process. You can just hit a button and then ship it to the App Store. But it can take a lot of time to get a good CI, CD solution in place. So it's definitely an investment. And at the same time, it's also kind of something, unless you're a build engineer in a huge company, it's probably something you want to spend at least time on as possible. 
So for that, I have three services that I can recommend uh, that are available, and it's Travis CI, Circle CI, and BuddyBuild. And the first two, they're kind of similar. They essentially, they give you a build environment where you can execute commands on the command line. So you can run things like Xcode build or Fastlane or something that you want to run in order to build and test your app. And then there's uh, BuddyBuild. And BuddyBuild is more of a complete solution for both uh, building your app and testing it and distributing betas. I'm going to try to make this segment not sound like an ad for BuddyBuild because it's not. <laughs> but I really like BuddyBuild. I think it's a really great platform. Uh, I've migrated most of my projects to use it now. And it's because it's super simple to set up. It offers a lot of great features out of the box. And it's also very easy to ship to the App Store using BuddyBuild. One trade-off to make there is that Travis and Circle, since they just give you a command line, you basically, it's up to you what you do. You can customize things a lot. With BuddyBuild, you can also do some customization, but it's more geared towards good defaults. And thankfully, those defaults are really good. Uh, it can infer uh, so many settings from your project and be able to build it really easily. Like most BuddyBuild projects, when you set them up, you will just like go through their setup process and it will build itself. So it's kind of magical the first time you do it. Uh, but it's a really great platform. It's a bit pricey, I will say, um, especially if you compare it to the other ones. But in my case, I think it's worth it. Um, it's, uh, it's a huge time saver. And, uh, but if you want to tinker more with things, then maybe Travis CI or Circle is a place to start. Uh, but BuddyBuild, they also have a free tier if you just want to try it out as well. If you want to learn more about CI, I actually wrote a blog post about it a couple of um, a couple of months back or something like that, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's about how you can set up both Travis and BuddyBuild uh, to build your project. Uh, so check that out if you're interested in more about CI. And again, keep the questions coming if you want to learn more about CI or you want me to answer any other questions about that, then feel free to submit more. So we've actually now reached the end of this first episode. I want to try to keep it around half an hour uh, so it's not too long. And I want to make sure to just answer kind of a handful of questions or something like that every episode. Now, it's been a lot of fun. Just this first recording has been a lot of fun to do. Uh, so I'm really excited about this podcast. And this is really just the beginning. So I'm looking forward to recording a lot more episodes and with guests on the show as well. So like I mentioned in the beginning... For the next episode, my guest will be Roy Marmelstein. Uh, he's a great guy. He's an iOS developer at Spotify. So if you have any questions for him, then make sure you submit them on uh, swiftbysundell.com slash podcast. Uh, this is also where you can go to find the show notes for this episode, as well as the other ones that we'll make. And feel free to subscribe to this podcast in your podcast player if you want to get notified of new episodes. And share it with your friends. Uh, I would really love that. This is a new show. So if you want to spread the word and help, uh, help spread the podcast, then that would be amazing. I would really, really appreciate that. Uh, also, I would really appreciate if you have any feedback about this podcast. Now, this is a completely new territory for me. So if you have anything uh, positive, negative feedback, feel free to send it my way. Uh, I would love to hear what you have to say. And the easiest way to uh, get in touch with me is on Twitter. I'm at John Sundell. So you can tweet anything, any feedback or questions you might have there. And 
thank you so much for listening and uh, I'll talk to you on the next episode.